we are going to engage the topic of prophecy as it appears in the New Testament, uh, where we're at in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I want to say something, just a word of preface about prophecy. There's this popular conception as to what prophecy is, that it's some kind of overwhelming feeling that one has that they should say this or that thing or believe this or that about the future. Ask yourself if you've maybe thought of prophecy in these terms. One of the hallmarks of various false religions out there is that there's almost always some guy or gal who gets these overwhelming feelings that they count to be prophecies. And they even confide in people around them saying, I'm not sure that this is a word of God, but I have an intense feeling that it might be. I want you to know that that is not what prophecy is in Scripture. When we talk about this gift that was prominent in that first age of the Christian church, it's going to become clear that a prophetic word from the Lord is not a tingling in your stomach. It's not what it is. And with that in mind, and given our tendency to sometimes trust our hearts, to trust internal tinglings more than Scripture, we're going to come with a word of prayer. That God would orient our minds and our hearts to His infallible word, over and above the feelings of the human heart. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we come to you, having already confessed sin, and now we come to you acknowledging these inherent weaknesses in our soul. Lord, that very often we are more inclined to trust the feelings of our heart, feelings of a heart that you have called depraved and wicked above all else, even above your written word. Lord, I pray that you would prepare us, therefore, for its teaching. Prepare us for the full orb message of Scripture in regard to the gift of prophecy. May we learn from Scripture. May we learn about it. May we be utterly reliant on your infallible word as we search it out. In Jesus' name we pray, Father, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to read verses 1 to 5 as we continue to make our way through the book of 1 Corinthians as we are about a year and a half into this exposition. Open your Bibles and just follow along with me as I read. And when I'm finished, I'll say this is God's word. You can respond, thanks be to God. We'll all rise to our feet and sing a short verse, the glory of Patri. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to man but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. This is God's word. Now, Trinitas Church, to locate this passage in its purpose, let us remind ourselves where we come from. Paul has already argued in 1 Corinthians 13 that above all else, God desires to see his people grow in spiritual graces, the fruits of the Spirit, over and above the exercise of any spiritual gift. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, placed a premium on love. 
A church that is unloving, no matter how gifted, is otherwise useless. Here in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is about to apply this great principle to two of the favorite spiritual gifts of the Corinthian church, which are prophecy and speaking in tongues. Paul is going to talk about what it would mean to exercise these gifts in a fashion that is loving. Notably, Paul begins by saying, pursue love, desire spiritual gifts. There's a great difference between gifting and the various fruits of the Holy Spirit that Paul mentions here. You can all pursue love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. These virtues of the Spirit you can actively pursue. Not a single person in this room can actively pursue or give themselves the gift of prophecy or give themselves a gift of healing. You can't do it. You can at best eagerly desire it. You can at most organize your lives so that you're willing to receive what God has to give, but you cannot of your own effort obtain it. For the Spirit, in His sovereign wisdom, He dispenses these things according to His desire says Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. With that in mind, therefore, Paul notes this about the relationship between prophecy and speaking in tongues. He says that prophecy is essentially a more desirable and better gift as regards the well-being of any church. The rationale for this is simple. Someone would come into a church and speak in a foreign language. No one in the church would derive any benefit from that unless it were interpreted. At which point, a message spoken in a foreign language would virtually be turned into prophecy, says Paul in verse 5. He says that prophecy is more desirable, that Paul himself wishes the more that the Corinthians had it, and he even says that the one who prophesies is greater. This, therefore, raises an important question for us, Trinitas Church. Do we eagerly desire the spiritual gift of prophecy? In this church, I'll have you know that any number of charismatics and Pentecostals would come in here and say, your, your service wouldn't appear to be organized in any such fashion at all. We don't have a microphone sitting up here at the front, such that if someone got a prophetic word, they could stop the service and come and share their message with us. In fact, our confession of faith is most clear, that we do not expect for a gift of prophecy to manifest itself in the course of events in a church service. Westminster Confession, chapter 1, verse 1. So this is the very beginning. It says this about our current circumstances. Our current circumstances, we're told, make it the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. In that same chapter, in the sixth verse of it, it says this, says of scripture that unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the spirit or traditions of men. Our denomination and our confession is unambiguous. It is cessationist with regard to prophecy. That means that we believe that the gift of prophecy is exercised in the New Testament has ceased. So how do we heed this passage that says to eagerly desire spiritual gifts and most of all prophecy. Friends, you might be in this church and even saying yourself that I believe in the continuation of prophecy and I'm surprised that you don't. Others of you might say 
that by not expecting prophecies to appear in our service, we are denying the supernatural. Before you say any of these things, let me provide a word of wisdom to you. It is always best to make every effort to understand something before you disagree with it. The same is true of our confession. Let's make sure that we all understand what it's trying to say before we squarely disagree with it. So we begin with a basic statement of what cessationism is and what it isn't. Friends, I will put this out there right now. If you were to meet one of the 120 ministers who produced the Westminster Confession, every single one of you to the man would think that they were incredible, deep, and devout supernaturalists who believed utterly in the activity of God in the world. And you would even think that they believed in the continuation of prophecy if you heard the various stories and accounts of things that had happened in their lives. Let me tell you about this group of men who wrote our confession. The Westminster Confession was written between 1643 and 1653 by 120 ministers, mostly Puritan, from England, and advisors to that committee from Scotland and elsewhere in what we would call the United Kingdom. They were charged with the task of writing a book of church order, essentially, that would unite England, Scotland, and Ireland in one common worship form and practice. But at the same time that they were charged to produce just that, a form of government, they also produced two confessions, or rather one confession of faith, two catechisms, the Westminster Larger and Shorter, and a directory for worship. Let me tell you about some of the things these men believed about the supernatural. Almost everybody in that assembly had this belief. This was very common in the 17th century. They had the belief that people very near to death would have unique insights into the supernatural and even into the future. They believed that. They believed that as a soul was about to depart from this life, they had some greater proximity to spiritual things. And they're unambiguous in their writings about this view. They also believed that people could, could utter uncanny and even sometimes inadvertent prophecies and foretellings of the future, if we should use that word. One example is John Knox himself, the founder of Presbyterianism in Scotland. John Knox was a bold and vehement preacher. And let me tell you one story of such a foretelling of the future, so it seems even inadvertently, that was widely recognized by all of the ministers at Westminster. 1572, the Calvinists in France, known as the Huguenots, found themselves on the opposite side of a terrible massacre. Charles IX of France He had the highest-ranking Huguenot official in France, Admiral Gaspard de de Coligny, killed, murdered. And that led to a massacre called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572, where as many as 30,000 Huguenots were killed all throughout France, solely because they were reformed in their religious conviction. This happened to be... In 1572, the last year of John Knox's life, this fiery Presbyterian founder and preacher. It just so happened that when he was preaching one Sunday, the ambassador, the French ambassador to Scotland was in his congregation. 
John Knox that day thundered from the pulpit. He declared in no uncertain terms that there would be absolutely no peace for Charles IX of France who had overseen this massacre or for his family. And he said that the sword would never depart from this man's household. As it turned out, two years later, King Charles died and without an heir, without someone to succeed him. Given the prophetic tone with which John Knox spoke, given how immediately his words and his predictions seemed to be fulfilled, many regarded this as a deep insight into the future. Does this sound like a person in your mind who's an out-and-out cessationist who doesn't believe in the supernatural in this life? A similar instance of this was a man by the name of James Usher. He was one of the Irish Reformed, and he, at the end of his life, also uttered words ominous to his peers. One of his young students said to him, what do you anticipate for the future? Look how well the Reformation has been doing in England. And he said this to the man, fool not yourselves with such hopes, for I tell you, you have yet seen All you have yet seen hath been but the beginning of sorrows to what is to come upon the Protestant churches in Christ. He goes on to predict that in fact the church in England and all throughout what would become the United Kingdom would be under great persecution. And indeed they were. Another such example that was widely recognized as a legitimate foretelling of events to come, again, inadvertently, was in the case of a Czech reformer by the name of John Huss. I've told you about this man before. He championed views that anticipated the, the Reformation, that Scripture alone is our highest authority, and that we're saved by faith alone. And he was eventually burned at the stake in 1415. When John Huss was being brought to be burned, the executioner said to the man next to him, Now we will cook the goose, Huss in Bohemian means goose. To that, John Huss responded, yes, but there will come an eagle in a hundred years that you will not reach. Huss undoubtedly meant to speak of the second coming of Christ. He probably didn't mean to be taken literally about the 100 years, but do you know what did happen 100 years from 1415? Another man who also was brought before a tribunal and ultimately sentenced to be killed and who would not recant his views about his faith named Martin Luther came and this man's efforts at reformation changed the world. Huss's words were widely regarded by the men at Westminster as accurately anticipating, foretelling the reformation. Friends, I will have you know right now, to be a cessationist does not mean that there will not be uncanny insights that you and I might have, surprisingly, into things that will come to pass in the future. Simply isn't what it means. I'll let you know, when I was about seven years old, I think seven or eight, we were driving home from my aunt's house, and my nephew, or rather my cousin, was six months old. He's a little boy named Tanner. Shortly before that event, we had just had him at our house for a whole week. We'd watched this little boy. And we were driving home somewhat late at night from my aunt's house. And I remember feeling fearful that this young boy would die. 
I said to my mom, is it possible that Tanner could ever die from sudden infant death? Have you ever heard of that? No one really knows what causes it, but that children can, can die in infancy. It's, it's just a fact and while they're sleeping, and no one knows exactly what the cause is. Well, it happened that my mom got pulled over that night, and while we were waiting for the officer to check her license and all of these things, we had a long talk in the car about the reality that those things do occur, but it's very unlikely in the case of a little boy who's six months old, like my, like my cousin. Turned out that the very next morning he had died of sudden infant death. Now, friends, I want to be very clear. I do not believe that I am a prophet in the biblical sense by any stretch of the imagination. But there was something about that conversation that proved to be consoling not only to us, but to my aunt for many years to come, as if it were that the Lord had sovereignly overseen the event and by his providence had us even consider the possibility of it before it occurred. So these things do happen. And the reformers did not, by any means, desire to deny that sometimes these providential moments and uncanny events do occur. I'll just mention a few more that the Protestant reformers who wrote the Westminster Confession were well aware of. These men believed that very often dreams could portend events that occurred. They even believed that angelic influence could have something to do with it. One such example of alleged angelic intervention into human affairs was in the gunpowder plot of 1605. If you've ever seen the movie V for Vendetta, or if you've ever seen that that group online, I think they're called Anonymous, it's like a hacker group, and their symbol is like this mask that looks like a Jason mask, except he's smiling. (laughs) The guy that that's based on is a guy named Guy Fawkes, who was one of the leaders of a Roman Catholic conspiracy to blow up the English House of Commons during the reign of King James I. As it turned out, an anonymous letter of all things got sent to the House of Lords before it was blown up, alerting them to the plot, and it saved everybody. There was enough gunpowder underneath the House of Lords to reduce the thing to rubble completely. And the men at the Westminster Assembly, by and large, credited that to angelic intervention to change the heart of one of the conspirators to make him do something you'd otherwise would not expect. Many people in this church, by the way, also have had experiences, very strange experiences that have led them to do things you would otherwise not expect. The last thing I'll mention is that most of these men believe that people at the time of death or near death would often have premonitions of danger and death. One man by the name of John Flavel, after the Protestants were kicked out of their churches in the great ejection of 1662, forced to worship in the woods and hidden in secret places, wrote, a great deal about various experiences wherein danger, danger was either in some way or another given by way of premonition that people saw it coming and were kept from it. Now, after telling you all of that, how many of you are going, oh, good grief, Brand! If this is really what the Westminster Divines were like, then they're equivocating when they say they're cessationists. These are men who believe in prophecy and the supernatural. I don't know why they ever wrote Westminster Confession 1.1 and 1.6. Here's why, friends. These men knew their Bibles well enough to know that everything I just described, all those wonderful experiences, are not by any means what the Bible calls prophecy. 
and I'll give you two stark differences between every one of them and what the Bible calls prophecy. Biblical prophecy is marked by the fact that it is an immediate revelation from God, which means in short, That biblical prophecy means that when a prophet speaks, the prophet's words are identical with God's words. There is a one-to-one correlation between that prophetic word, what God says, and those verbal words that a man says. It is unambiguous throughout the Bible that this is what prophecy means. Deuteronomy 18, 18 says this. After Moses is about to depart, God says that he will raise up a prophet or a school of prophets like you. And I will put my words in his mouth. That is to say that the words spoken by prophets are God's words. In the verse of dedication that we read just last week for Franklin Jeremiah, we read about how God says to the prophet Jeremiah, I have put my words in your mouth. All of these uncanny events where men seem to foretell events of the future, not a single one of these men would have said, and by the way, thus saith the Lord, my words are God's words. Do you see the difference there? Biblical prophecy places the word of God into the mouth of men. 2 Peter 1.21 says the same thing with respect to New Testament prophecy. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. When John Knox, therefore, was explaining his own experiences of saying things that seemed to come to pass before they did, he says this, My assurances are not the Mervalis of Merlin. Mervalis was a secret potion. Nor yet the dark sentences of profane prophecies, but one, the plain truth of God's word, the invincible justice of the everlasting God, and the ordinary course of his punishments and plagues from the beginning. He says, the reason why I can say with certainty that Charles IX would not have the sword depart from his house is because I've read the Bible, and God does not allow men who massacre his people to go on for very long, very often. He says, my prophecies or my anticipations of the future are not what the biblical prophets were doing, wherein my words were God's words. Biblical prophecy is about immediate revelation. You can think of all sorts of events in the Bible, therefore, that involve telling people about events that are to come that are not prophecy. You might remember in Luke chapter 2 that shepherds are told that a savior is to be born by angels. They're given information that no human mind could know naturally. And guess what? They're not called prophets. Because their mouths were not vested with the ability to speak the very word of God. And this leads us to the second attribute of biblical prophecy, which the Westminster divines had believed had ceased. And that is that a prophet's words are infallible. They're not only identical with the word of God, but because they're identical with the word of God, they're also infallible because God, of course, cannot err. This basic definition of prophecies in Deuteronomy 18.22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously and you shall not be afraid of him. Friends, you know what this means? 
Maybe some of you in this room have had vivid, unsettling dreams that even anticipated things that really did occur. Guess what? That does not make you a prophet in the biblical sense. Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible had these vivid, unsettling dreams. And they're not called prophets. They rather need inspired prophets, men of God, to infallibly interpret them and give sense to these visions. Hence, there is a great difference between the general acts of divine providence, its mysteries, and even its uncanny connection to real life events. So the better question now that we made an effort to understand these authors of the Westminster Confession is a question for all of you. Maybe you came into this room saying, I am a continuationist. I believe that prophecy still occurs today. After it has been so defined, do you really believe that? Are you really a continuationist? Do you believe that there are people who walk the face of the earth who can say, my words are God's words? My words are infallible. Do you believe that? In fact, the vast majority of charismatic and Pentecostal denominations out there practice no such thing in their services. They'll even argue that prophecy, perhaps, in the New Testament is a lesser order sort of phenomenon where occasionally the prophet can be wrong. And maybe it isn't this sort of immediate spokesmanship for God as we find in the Old Testament. Notably, if that's what they're saying, when they say they believe in the continuation of prophecy, they're really not that far from where we're at because they agree that no scripture can be written again. Well, if that is the case, friends, others of you might look on and say, all right, Brent, I don't believe that prophecy continues in that same grand biblical sense. But I also don't know if I have any biblical arguments for it. Just seems like a pragmatic reality that these things don't occur anymore. And so I want to, in rather brief succession, provide for you a basic biblical rationale for why we don't expect prophecy to occur anymore. And I'm going to center on this most important one, which is the finality of Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. Two says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Trinitas Church, the reason we as a church do not anticipate the church to be led by prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah for generations to come is because no one in human history could have more to say about God better than the very word of God himself, Jesus Christ. Let me make something very clear to you. You will never find a better portrait of who God is or what he thinks or what he does than in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we should all ask this question. What in the world does Joseph Smith have to add to that? What in the world does some alleged prophet have to add or supplement to what we have learned in Jesus Christ? Friends, in the Old Testament, there are three great offices Prophet, priest, and king. Priests would go and offer an offering in God's temple to foreshadow and anticipate the offering of Jesus Christ. Why do we not have priests anymore, friends? Because the better priest and the final sacrifice has come. Isn't that right? 
In the Old Testament, there were kings who sat on a physical throne on planet Earth who were kings of God's people. The church of Jesus Christ does not any longer have a civil ruler or king, does she? Not as one of her offices. Why? Because the greater king has come. And he reigns on high, seated at the right hand of God. Let us ask about this third office. In the Old Testament, the people of God hung on the words of prophets all throughout her existence. But in Jesus Christ, the greatest prophet has come. And therefore, this verse in Hebrews can say, although in the old way, God spoke many times through many prophets, he has now spoken definitively in his son. And that whole New Testament witness in New Testament age is but a codification of who he is and what he did and what his teachings meant and what implications they had for us. It all centers on Christ. First reason, therefore, why we don't anticipate prophecy to continue to guide the church is because the greatest prophet has already come. The second reason why we don't expect for prophecy to continue into the church in this same fashion as it did in the New Testament is because it says in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Friends, Let me ask you something. When you're constructing a building, when do you build the foundation? At the beginning. And once that foundation is built, do you continue building it when you've gotten to the frame and the the wiring and the plumbing? Rather, it is finished. The apostolic gift and the prophetic gift had a specific foundational purpose to write down in an infallible fashion who Christ was, what he taught, and what he did. Therefore, we don't expect it again. We would not only note these two points, we would note, third, that Jesus Christ, our great prophet and authority himself, seemed to limit the prophetic ministry to the generation of his own lifetime. Listen to this verse very quick, very carefully. Jesus says in Luke eleven forty nine. To the Pharisees, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Did you hear what that just said? Jesus said, I am sending a prophetic and apostolic ministry to this generation so that all the blood of all the prophets of all time might be charged against them. What does that imply? that that prophetic ministry would be in and for that generation, that it was meant for that foundational time and not to be a mark of the church in her ministry for all ages. We could point to many other such instances. Joel says that in the last days of Israel, I will raise up prophets. That does not mean for the entire duration of the church, but in those last days wherein Israel is about to be displaced by a new type of worship a new type and expression of God's covenant and faith. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, the prophet says, I foretell 490 years will pass before I finish the transgression and make an end of sin and make atonement for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness. When did those things occur? In Jesus and his generation. And then it says to seal up vision and prophecy. 
The prophet says that within 500 years, I will make an end of sin and atonement, and prophecy will be sealed up. It will cease to be the normal means through which God speaks to his people. In addition to these several passages, we can even note that at that great and final book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, a book which purports to be the definitive disclosure of what Jesus is doing now and what he is like, the book ends like this. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Clearly, that pertains primarily to the book of Revelation itself, but the point is clear. We should all be aware that if anyone says they have any information to add about what the reigning Jesus Christ looks like or is doing or is accomplishing right now beyond the book of Revelation, they're making an effort to add to this definitive disclosure of who he is. And notably, that is what every single cult ever to exist does tries to add to the final revelation of who Jesus is and what he's like. In addition to all of these sorts of scriptures, we have even the witness of the New Testament itself. Paul goes about ordaining elders in the church to be teachers, and in what is likely his very last epistle, he says this to Timothy, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. In Titus, he says, hold fast to the faithful word or doctrine which is in accordance with the teaching. Paul has this idea that the basic doctrine of the church has been codified and now it is the job of a faithful minister to know it well and to preach it, not to receive new revelations about it. One of the great arguments for the cessation of any further scripture writing comes from 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Friends, if there is a prophet on planet Earth who has revelations not found in the Bible, then there are many good works that you cannot do unless you know that prophet. You'd need to believe their teaching. You'd need to take their directions. But what does this say in this capping of epistle of Paul, scripture is sufficient for you to do every good work. This means that there cannot be a person speaking for God new revelation that you're bound to believe, or otherwise, there would be many good works for you to do that are not found, written, or prescribed to you in this book. These are just a few of the arguments, and I won't labor much longer, although I actually wrote up about 16. I only told you about seven. Um, These are just a few of the reasons why the Reformed tradition has come to the conclusion that it has. And now we can therefore go back to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5, and apply it. Earnestly desire prophecy, Trinitas Church. We do desire prophecy. We desire prophecy in the time frame in which Christ said it would be spoken... We desire prophecy as the New Testament itself tells us it would be delivered and those prophecies are right here in this book. We center our ministry on that most edifying spiritual gift that Paul commends to people, which is the word of prophecy, which is the written scriptures. We read them as an act of worship and we preach them as we are told to preach them in 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever speaks or preaches is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. This is how we heed. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. And we preach 
the finality of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you've never heard this before, you need to hear this now. The deepest, most significant revelation that you could ever hear is not to be found in a fuzzy feeling in your stomach. It is not to be found from an esoteric dream. It is not to be found anywhere but in this basic message that Jesus Christ was sent into the world to bear your sin to the cross the wholeness of the punishment that is due to it, and to give to you his perfect spotless righteousness so that if you believe in him before the Father, you will be found guiltless forevermore in his sight and you will have eternal life with your creator. In Revelation chapter 19, it says that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Christ. The whole point of New Testament prophecy was to tell you that. We eagerly desire that message every Sunday. Friends, we heed this same verse in another fashion. We do look forward to and anticipate the Holy Spirit enlightening our minds, which is analogous to prophecy that when we read the scriptures, the Spirit of God would give us insight into its teaching and meaning. Have you noticed that every single time we read the Word of God and preach it, we begin with what? A prayer of illumination. We want a present work of the Holy Spirit right now on our souls and hearts, opening our minds to the written scriptures so that in an analogous way to a prophet who hears the word of God, we might have our ears open to hear the prophecies of God and to apply them in the most meaningful ways to our lives. Our liturgy is not just a series of motions for motion's sake. They're about heeding the scriptures. Friends, after telling you this, I hope that you derive some sort of comfort. I hope you're comforted to know that our session does not make decisions about people because of bad feelings we get in our tummy. That might not seem like that big of a deal until it's you. I think you would all be rather comforted to know that you are not going to be blacklisted in this church because one of the elders counts themselves to be an infallible prophet and, well, they got a bad feeling about you. I want to be very clear. It may be the case that in God's providence, Scott ate too much gluten one day and he has bad indigestion the very moment he meets you and he goes, man, I got a bad feeling about that guy. And it may be in the wisdom of God that those two things were ordered because somebody is a big-time weirdo and a creeper of whom we should be most fearful. But here's the thing. We're not going to stop there. If there's a bad providential feeling, friends, we're going to investigate the matter because we don't regard ourselves to be infallible prophets hanging on our every feeling or counting them to be immediate revelations from God. I hope that brings you comfort. I hope it brings you comfort as well to know that um, seeing as none of the leaders in our church claim to be infallible prophets, you are going to be spared many difficulties. How do you suppose we would deal with it if we believed in the actual gift of biblical prophecy being exercised? If someone came to a session meeting and said, well, I just have this feeling we should give the entire church budget to this missions organization and then we will receive 100 times much in return. How would we handle that, friends, if we really believed that prophecy were operative? How would you respond to that individual? Would we just have a stalemate and say, well, I don't feel the same way. 
think I'm a prophet too? What if I came to the church and said, by a revelation from God, I've actually learned that we need to celebrate a whole new extra-biblical holiday, and you all got to be there or you're sitting if you don't. How would you know? How would you even handle or test that? I'll tell you the great cult evangelist who helped to bring my dad out of one of the biggest cults in the country. He would deal with men who claimed to be prophets, and he would point out, it is so easy to just claim that a word you're speaking is from God, and it is actually so difficult as a theologian to maybe disprove that that's the case. When I was in Young Life in college, it was going to be the final meeting of our Young Life group that year. And one of the girls, we were trying to determine who would give the final message. She came up and she said, well, it's been prophesied that I am going to be a great deliverer of oracles and messages. So clearly I should be the final speaker of the year. We snicker, but friends, if you believe in an authoritative, infallible gift of prophecy, how would you actually respond to that person? How would we deal with that? So friends, I hope you're comforted about the final word of Jesus Christ and the finality of the gospel of Christ. But I want to give you one final admonition. We might be very glad that as Reformed people, we have a very refined view of what the scriptures teach. But I want to give you an admonition that we all have a lot to learn from our charismatic and Pentecostal brothers. Because here's the thing. And many of you know, I'm a professor at an Assemblies of God university. I have no shortage of exposure to those who believe in the continuation of prophecy. And I'm going to tell you this. 99% of the time, words that are counted as prophetic are really nothing more than bold, shameless encouragement. 99% of the time when words that are said to be prophetic in charismatic churches, what they're really doing is they'll say things like this. Sister, the Lord means to prosper you. He has good things in store for you. Brother, God is not going to waste that gift that you have of teaching. He is going to put it to use. Let me tell you something, friends. You do not have to be the prophet Isaiah to look at your neighbor and say, I notice that you have this gift and the Lord is going to use it for his kingdom. And I am so often disappointed that as reformed people who have this refined view of prophecy, we don't, with greater vigor and eagerness, go around simply flooding words of encouragement out of our mouths that we don't have to be prophets to speak. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, In our passage, the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Our charismatic brothers too often think that if you speak edification and consolation, you're a prophet. That's not true. But those things are very prophet-like and they are very important. And we should all be exercised in speaking them. I'll have you know that last year when we did our men's retreat, we did a joint service with Ascension Presbyterian Church. One of the elders came up to me after that. You know what he said to me? He just laid his hand on my shoulder and he says, you know what, Brant? I just got this overwhelming feeling that God loves your church. He just loves your people. He just spoke this word to me that, again, you don't have to be the prophet Elijah to be able to say to another minister and another church, God loves you and your people. 
I just would ask you, brothers and sisters, Presbyterians, Reformed people, if you have ever just been so overwhelmed by what providence has placed on your heart that you go up to a person and just speak bold consolation and comfort. That is the work of the Spirit. And in the name of being so guarded, so often we we make no effort to do such things. Friends, when Moses was taking the people through the wilderness and they were constantly complaining and discontent and doubting, he says, Lord, give me 70 prophets. Give me the gift of prophecy so that other people can be uplifting. A big part of having an analogous prophetic ministry is just using your words to edify and uplift. Let us leave, therefore, Heeding 1 Corinthians chapter 14, knowing we cannot make ourselves prophets, but we can do prophet-like things and build one another up. Consider that your neighbor perhaps more than they need, than they need to be taught something new. Real good at that. More than your neighbor needs to hear all the bad things in your life that got you down. Consider that maybe your mouth was made to build up and encourage like prophets did. Let us be a culture who believes that the Spirit of Christ is living in us and noticing other people. Even these kids. Kids, I want you to know, some of you big kids, you're in here, you're not in the catechism class anymore. I've noticed you. Some of you are artists, and you're going to be great artists someday. And some of you are teachers, and you're going to be great teachers someday. And some of you boys know way more about cars than I do, and I count at least both the Wilson boys, and they've taken my son under their wing, who know more about cars than me. And one day God is going to put those hands of yours to work on those sorts of skills of craftsmanship. I don't have to be a biblical prophet to tell you kids that. May every single one of us in this room do the same. Finally, I just want to say, if you're an unbeliever and you happen to be in our midst, uh, we believe in the supernatural. I hope that that's clear. We believe that God's providence works in mysterious ways in this body and round about us. But we also believe that God has spoken finally and infallibly in these written scriptures about how to be saved. We preach the gospel to you that if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. And we leave you with the charge and the challenge to do just that. Hope that's clear today. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God. It is clear to us that we have either fallen into the pit and the trap of valuing the feelings of our own heart as if they were your words above your written word, or rather, Lord God, we have grown cold and stale, unwilling to speak uplifting, bold, faithful words to our neighbor, telling them the very things that your word has already said, that you mean to prosper your people, you mean to bless your people, you mean to use all of our gifts for the ends of your kingdom. God, we've fallen into one of these two errors, each and all of us. I pray, Lord God, for this congregation, that we would eagerly desire prophecy as it is codified in the scriptures, that we would eagerly desire to apply them and to speak them to one another as words of comfort and edification, that we would not cower from this task that we have from you as people endowed with your spirit and blessed with an objective word that meets our every need. Father, we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen.